You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We have two readings this afternoon. Both are connected with our text, which will be the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 21, concerning the church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. We turn first to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We'll turn to the next letter in in the order that it is in your Bibles. Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll read the first few verses from chapter 2. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 21. The articles of the Apostles' Creed regarding the Christian church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by his Spirit and Word in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and shall remain, forever shall remain, a living member of it. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins nor my sinful nature against against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never 
come into condemnation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you who have been united to Him, called to Him, who worship God together in Him, ever since the fall into sin, it has been the natural impulse of mankind to flee from God and to seek a, an autonomous, self-governing life apart from His Maker. Ever since the fall into sin, it's been the natural impulse of mankind to flee from God and to seek to live our lives apart from Him. Adam and Eve expressed this desire when they first ate from that forbidden fruit and later when they, fearful and ashamed, hid themselves from God. And it's been the pursuit of mankind ever since. It's expressed in different ways, whether this desire for an autonomous, self-governed life is expressed by an individual, as in Lamech, claimed to be his own man, he didn't need God to look after him, or whether it was expressed by a group, as in the time of the Tower of Babel, as a whole community, a whole group, claimed that together they didn't need God. This pursuit continues today. And we could sit here for the next half an hour and trot out all sorts of examples, illustrations of this happening. It it happens when our government legislates the sovereignty of personal rights. It happens when the Supreme Court justices allow a mother's personal rights to trump those of, of justice, particularly of the unborn baby within her. It spreads all over the place. It's not just in government. It is also in religion, even in Christianity. When you have Christians talking about my God who would never punish people or send them to hell, or my Christ who accepts people no matter what they believe or what they do, or my Christianity which is more tolerant and better than your Christianity, As if any one person, judge, government, is the sovereign dictator of truth. And where has this emphasis on being our own person, being autonomous, being able to live without God, governing ourselves, where has this left us? Well, it's left us with a culture of individualism and self-absorption with unwanted pregnancies, with disconnected teens, estranged spouses, broken families, neglected, and even abused elderly parents. So that's the state of things in the world as we come to our catechism this afternoon. But as we come to Lord's Day 21, this section on the church, we see something that's in stark contrast to any culture of autonomy or self-governing, we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings us in completely the opposite direction. It brings us into fellowship. It brings us into communion. And it brings us into submission under the triune God. 
The work of the Holy Spirit is not to disconnect us in any way, but it is to unite us and to unite us most of all with Jesus Christ. To bring us into the very family of God. And that union is a, is a real and an effective and a powerful and even an unbreakable union. And it's profound. It changes who you are. It changes who you are. It changes everything about how you live. And it draws us into something that is grand and something that is old. Something that is as old as humanity itself. And something that will last forever and ever. This afternoon... We confess that we believe that we are united with Christ. I believe that I am united with Christ. And when I'm united with Christ, I'm united with his church. I am united with his body. And all this is possible because I'm united with his blood. I believe that I am united with Christ with Christ's church. When you believe in the work of Jesus Christ, what he has done by his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, when you believe in that, you are united to Jesus Christ. In fact, you could say it is through union with Jesus Christ, through being united with Him, that all of those things that He has done in His life, death, resurrection, and ascension is made effective for you. And this is the Spirit's work. We looked at that last week. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit's big agenda in this world to unite the children of God with Christ. To, to unite the chosen ones of God with the Son of God Himself. And if the Holy Spirit did not do this mysterious and powerful work to you, then you would remain outside of Christ. All that He's done, all that He is, would not be effective for you. But the glorious reality that the Word of God teaches us is that through faith and by that mysterious working of the Holy Spirit, you are united with Christ in this vital, life-giving relationship. When Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches, apart from me you can do nothing, he was speaking in clear, plain, and simple terms. Apart from me, you are, you, you can do nothing, but in me, you have power and life forevermore. The truth of the Spirit's work is that we are united with Christ. Now, you turn that relationship around and you see what the, what the Spirit does, what this union with Christ creates in this world. What is created where the Spirit is working? Uniting sinners to the work of Jesus Christ? 
What is happening when the Spirit is uniting formerly orphaned, lost, autonomous people to the life and power of Jesus Christ? If you take cuttings, branches, and unite them to a vine, which is healthy, then those branches become a part of that vine, and the whole thing becomes something bigger. Those branches, which were formerly dead, become alive and and become a part of a greater whole. The grand work of the Spirit in uniting believers to Jesus Christ is that He creates the church. The church. Apart from Christ, the church has no existence. Without Christ, there is no church. The church is those who are united to the saving work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is at the very center. He is the center and the life of the church. Not only that, but He is also the head of the church. Not only do you lose your personal autonomy in being joined with other members of the church, but you lose your I am the master of my own soul status. You don't have that anymore. That's okay. It didn't do you much good anyways. Jesus Christ becomes the master of your soul. He becomes your head, your master, your Lord. And that is the emphasis of Answer 54 in the Catechism, that the church is is Christ's work, that Christ is the head of the church, and He is the one who by His Spirit is, is building the church for His purposes. It's built by Him, on Him, and through Him. And the Catechism is trying to emphasize the magnitude of our head when it speaks of Him as the Son of God. The Son of God. The building of the church wasn't something that just happened when Jesus came into the world or when the Spirit, when He sent the Spirit into the world at Pentecost. No, the building of the church is is something that has been happening from the very beginning of human history. It's the work of the eternal Son, the Son of God. It's, It's what He's been doing through His Spirit for since He created Adam and Eve. Yes, from the very beginning of the world to the very end of the world, with no break in between, the Son of God has been reconciling the world to God and building His church. Think about that. There's no break in between. It is one single connected line. Never has it been cut off. There has never been a time so dark, so apostate. There has never been persecution so strong, nor apathy so pervasive that Jesus Christ could not and has not or will not overcome it for the sake of gathering those who are his. And the totality of this work of Jesus Christ is further communicated in those three verbs that the Catechism speaks of. That from the beginning of the world to its end, Christ gathers, defends, and preserves. Christ takes those who are His from the world. He defends them from outside attack. 
and he preserves them from inside rot. None can pluck us from his hand. Not only is Christ sovereign in the scope of gathering his church, but he's also sovereign in the means that he uses in gathering his church. Now, when we think of how to expand the church, doesn't it happen so easily that our minds go to all sorts of methods that we might use, perhaps well-intentioned, but methods nonetheless? We look at our society, even the way that I've described it at the beginning, and we say, well, people are feeling disconnected. Well, then our church should focus on fellowship. That's how we'll get them in. People are lonely. Our church should be a visiting church. We'll go visit everyone. That'll bring them in. Are people bored? Maybe our church should have more lively or entertaining worship. People struggle with a lack of education about how to live their Christian life, about parenting or whatever else. Our church will focus exclusively on the how-tos of Christian living. Now, some of those things are good things, no doubt. But the question is, what means is Christ using to gather his church? That is, are, are these things the kind of things that Christ uses to gather his church? And shouldn't we stick with his agenda? Because Christ will gather his people regardless of what we might believe to be the best way, Christ will gather his people in his way. He is the head of the church after all. And what is the way that Christ gathers his church? Well, it's by his spirit and by his word. That is, unless Jesus Christ sends his spirit, there will no be, there will be no change of heart. We can't manipulate or force faith upon anyone. It doesn't work. The Spirit must do His work. But the Spirit does not work autonomously. We saw that last week. The Spirit works in fellowship with the Trinity. He works for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so it is that the Spirit uses the Word to create faith. The word which has Jesus Christ at its center, at its core, and the gospel of everything that Christ has done is what the Spirit, through the word, communicates. That's how he creates faith. The word, the entirety of scriptures, which centers upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's only by hearing of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done through the message of Scripture as it's proclaimed to the world that a true faith can be kindled. A true faith is a faith that reaches out and grabs hold of the certainty and sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. That's what the church is founded on. It's founded on Jesus Christ. And so Christ uses his spirit and his word to create faith and to build his church. The church is united in true faith. And so it is that we can say that this church is chosen to everlasting life. The church is the body of those who are united with Christ and those who are united with Christ forever. Chosen to everlasting life. Yes, your brothers and sisters with Abraham, with David, with the Apostle Peter, with the great 
saints, brothers and sisters, church people, faithful Christians who have lived before you, together with your loved ones who have passed on to glory before you. The whole church united together in Jesus Christ forever, for an everlasting life. The church is an amazing reality. This is the work that the Son of God through the Holy Spirit is doing. He just is doing this. And there's nothing that you or I or anyone else can do to stop him. He's a juggernaut. But you know what's amazing about the church? That just as a bunch of branches are joined to the vine to create something bigger than all the individual parts, yet at the very same time, it is still made up of all these individual parts. They never lose their identity, even as they become one with the vine. In becoming united with Christ, you do not lose your identity. You do not disappear into the vastness of Christ's church. No, you who believe in Christ become a member. You, distinctly you, through faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit, become a member, an indispensable member of Christ's church. You become a living member of Christ's body with an important, necessary and even beautiful function within. You become a member of Christ's body. Now, there is not really a distinction between saying the church of Christ and the body of Christ. These two are the same thing. In our reading from Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, we read that God placed everything under Christ and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church and the body of Jesus Christ is the same. But in speaking about the body of Christ, we're emphasizing the manner in which Christ's church is called to exist. Now, what does that mean? The manner in which Christ's church is called to exist. Well, what I mean is this, that the church is not the collection of Jesus Christ, like the action figure collection or the stamp collection. That he gathers, defends, and preserves it so he can place the church on a nice shelf where it will look like a decent bunch of figurines and do nothing. Nor is the church the sky train of Christ. Christ is just trying to get everybody in so he can transport us all to a different location, which we understand will be a lot better. No, the church is the body of Christ. The church is living and active like a body. We exist for Christ to carry out his directives and orders, just like a, the hand and the foot and the arm, and the eye, the mouth. They all respond to the impulses and directions given by the head. What this means is that there's more to being united with Christ than simply receiving all the benefits of his work. Through being united with Christ, you also receive the renewing benefits of his work. As Paul wrote in Ephesians or Philippians 2, if you are united with Christ, 
If you have fellowship by the Spirit, therefore, work that out. Be like-minded. Have one spirit and purpose. Have the attitude of Christ. We are united with Christ, brothers and sisters, for a purpose. That we might serve Him and take directions from Him. Do we get that? Do we really believe that? Do we truly confess that? Yes, the Spirit unites you with Jesus Christ, but conversely, Jesus Christ gives you the Spirit and thus gives you a rich measure of all His treasures and gifts. And we often speak about the treasures that we have in heaven and how we can't wait to get there. And what a beautiful reality that is. It's true. We have treasures in heaven. What a comfort. But it's also true that we have treasures right now. Christ has filled your spiritual wallet. He's given you a heavenly gift card so that you can go out and spend his money. That's what he does. He gives you his treasure. He gives you his gifts so that you can use them and spend them and spread them around for the good of those around you. He has given us gifts of His Spirit so that we can use them for the, the benefiting, the benefit and the upbuilding of the other parts of the body. In our individualistic and me first age, we, we must, as church, we must emphasize the reality of these gifts that Christ has given to us and our duty to use them for each other. It's been said that no man is an island. Certainly within the church, that ought not to be true. In Romans 12, Paul talks about the gifts of mercy, encouraging, serving, giving, and leading. And his message is clear. Use these gifts. Put them into action. Use them. If someone was to give, was to gain an inheritance of a million dollars, but they, they sat on that money and they didn't use it for the good of their poor neighbor or their, their poor brother or sister, We'd find that person terribly selfish. But what about the spiritual inheritance that we have in Christ? What about the million dollar gifts that Christ has given to us? Will we not share them for the sake of others? When someone is sick, will we not care for them? Where there's a lack of leadership, will we not step in to help out? Where there's a need of money, Will we not give generously? Christ has given us these gifts so that we might use them all for the benefit of each other. Now there's a certain tension there, isn't there? Didn't I just tell you to do something cheerfully? Does that really work? I can imagine someone sitting here right now planning not to listen to what I've just said, simply because I told you to do it. That's kind of how we react often, right? You can't tell me what to do. Well, look at how the catechism puts it in answer 55, the second part. It's actually quite striking. Everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. 
You have to do it readily and cheerfully. Sort of what it sounds like. So what is this? How does this work? Is this some kind of emotional manipulation or something like that? Well, no, it's not. But do you know why? Do you know why we can be duty-bound and yet readily and cheerfully? Well, it has everything to do with your union with Jesus Christ. Christ is not some distant tyrant telling you what to do from afar. He is your Lord, but He lives within you. He is your Master who is with you every day. He is your King who has fought the battle for you and made you His own. Jesus Christ brings you near to Himself so that you can operate according to duty. Yes, yes, we must do these things. But at the very same time, we operate from a willing and cheerful heart because is our Lord not the one who has given us eternal life? Are we not saved by his being our Lord? Has he not given us his spirit? Does he not pour out upon us his church gifts in abundance? Does he not give us joy? In Christ, you become a dutiful servant obligated to serve Him as your King. And at the very same time, you become the most eager volunteer, wanting nothing less than to serve Him readily and cheerfully. Some pretty profound realities. Christ's church-building work, the operation of the body being filled with gifts and helping each other, all of it beginning with us being autonomous or wanting to be autonomous and self-governing, wanting nothing to do with all of this in the first place. How does this happen? How is this church possible with, with people like us? How does Christ gather this church How does he free us from our selfish, autonomous desires? How does he change us into fruit branches on his vine, cooperative members of his body? We who once wanted to live by ourselves and wanted nothing to do with God. Thank you very much. Well, all of this is possible because at the heart, at the very heart of our union with Jesus Christ is our union with his blood. With the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that was poured out on Golgotha. The blood that was poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. In order to wash away our sins, wash away all that we have done in that autonomous, those desires to self-rule, and clothed us with His perfect righteousness. To bring us near to God. Yes, the blood of Jesus Christ, poured out in His suffering and death, washes the church of her sins, clothes her with His perfect righteousness, brings sinners into communion with God and each other, and fills our hearts with a ready and cheerful desire to serve God 
And is that not what we experienced this morning in the Lord's Supper? We celebrated the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been brought near to God, into communion with Him and with each other. Now, as some of you listen this afternoon, I wonder if you find yourself in that autonomous, I want to be free, I'm the master of my own soul, you can't tell me what to do, camp. Are you united with the church of Jesus Christ? Are you united with Christ? Have you been gripped by the possibility, the reality, of joining this church-gathering, world-changing, life-altering, life-renewing work of Christ? Do you wonder, how is it possible? Where does this come from? How can I come to God? Well, you must go to the blood of Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. That is the heart of our union with Jesus Christ. It happens as we confess along with answer 56. When you believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember your sins, nor your sinful nature against which you have to struggle all your life, but will graciously grant you the righteousness of Christ that you may never come into condemnation. To believe and to confess that, that is to be united with Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.